All right, a good tovach, everyone. Let us let us begin. So I want to first begin, and thank you for everyone. I try we're trying a different uh, a different time slot this year. Normally, again, I give the Shabbos Shuvadrasha, Baruch Hashem on Shabbos afternoon. Figure try something a little bit different this year. We'll see you, what happens in years to come. But thank you to everyone for accommodating the time change. I want to begin by thanking our sponsors for tonight's Shabbos Shuvadrasha to thank Robin Schaefer for dedicating the drasha tonight with gratitude to the entire Kihila as her year of Avelos is winding down. Robin wrote beautiful words. It was a year of great spiritual growth, especially in davening and the daf Robin is here every morning. So I think by now she's probably gone through about one third of Shas over the crest catching the end of daf to continued growth in the new year. For each and every one of us, we thank Robin very much for her dedication and for her sponsorship. And also to thank Aaron and Alana Weinbergen family for dedicating the drasha tonight in honor of their father, Mr. Doug Stanger, David Shmuel Ben Shraga Faibal Halevi. On the occasion, I saw Mr. Stanger here before. Maybe not. Ah, it's here. Good. On occasion of his birthday, happy birthday with love from his children and grandchildren. What a, what a beautiful, beautiful. I just have to tell you before we get started, I think it was last year for Mr. Stanger's birthday. His son contacted me, wanted to get his father a birthday present, said, I'd like to arrange for my father to be able to learn with you. That was the birthday present. And I said, amazing is the mishpacha who want to give their father the constant gift of Torah. So Mr. Stenger, clearly you're modeling something dramatic and magnificent for your mishpacha. And I could just give you the kach to do so until 120. Also, Meishi, what's uh, your cousin's name? Avram Lowy? Okay. We also dedicate our learning league in Israel. All of us heard the tragic news that came out of Uman on Matzei Rosh Hashanah, where a young 45-year-old father of 10 was traveling back to the airport, and as a result of a terrible collision, lost his life on the day after Rosh Hashanah. Young father of, of 10 children, Avram Loy, Avram Ben Tzvi Halevi. It's actually, it's Maishi Abramson's first cousin. I actually saw on the, on the news last night that uh, they're flying, this, not last night, this, this evening, that they're flying his body back to Eretz Yisrael this morning at 3 a.m. for Kavur in Eretz Yisrael. We hope that HaKadosh Baruch Hu is Menachem his Mishpacha, such a dramatic loss, especially in the opening hours of the new year. The Riban Hashem should look after the family, should look after the children, and the Mirza Hashem provide them with a measure of Nechama. So we find ourselves here, Baruch Hashem, on Matzei Shabbos Shuvah. And the topic I'd like to try to talk about a little this evening is what is the essence of tshuva? What is the essence of the dynamic of tshuva? We speak about tshuva, we spend a lot of time focusing on the process of tshuva, but what exactly does it mean to engage and to be successful in the process of tshuva? So there's a beautiful story that's told that a man once came over to the Rebbe of Slam, Slam Rebbe, the Nesiva Shalom. And he said, Rebbe, I'm struggling. I'm having a very difficult time in life. Why? Because I keep on making promises to myself. So today, I promise myself that I'm going to go ahead. I'm sorry. Good. Today, I promise I'm going to dive with a little more kavono. And the next day, I'm going to say I'm going to speak a little less Lashon Hara. I'm going to be nicer to my family and to make all of these promises. And says this man to the Islam Rebbe, I never come through. I never come through. Promise after promise, initiative after initiative. And at the end of the day, I never really deliver. 
And the man was so exasperated because this was a man who clearly wanted to do good, wanted to be good, wanted to deliver on those promises, yet consistently failed to do so. And in a moment of desperation, he says to Rabbi, you know what's going to happen after 120? They're, you know what they're going to put on my mitzvah? They're going to put on my tombstone? Paul Nikbar Bal Hashi'ifus. Here is buried the man who desired much. Shi'ifa is a desire. Paul Nikbar Bala Shi'ifas. Here is buried a man who desired to do a lot of good things. So Islam Rabbi says, you know, I'll tell you. If I was in a basalim, if I was in a cemetery, and I walked by a grave, and on the stone it said, Paul Nikbar Bala Shi'ifas, I would stop and daven at that kever. Because to be called a Bal Shi'ifas, to be called a person who wants and desires a lot out of life, even if I can't always come through, is something dramatic, beautiful, and magnificent. To want to do the right thing, to want to grow, to want to be good, to want to be righteous, to want to daven more, speak less Lashon Hara, be better to my Mishpacha, even if I don't deliver on those things, to want it, said the Salaam Rebbe, is an incredible accomplishment in and of itself. But yet, when we look at the Rambam, the Rambam clearly demands more. If you take a look at number one on your sheet, so the Rambam in Hilchas Tshuva writes as follows. This is Perak Beis, Halacha Beis, chapter two. Halacha two, the Rambam writes, Umahiyat What is Tshuva? There should be additional sheets in the, by the Bima, if anyone needs. I think in both of the ladies' sections there are sheets as well. So, Mai Bal Tshuva. What is a Baal Tshuva? Hu shi'azov The sinner should go ahead and leave his sin. V'asiru mimachshavto He should erase it from his thought. V'yigmar belibo shalo ya'aseyu od And he has to have resolve that he's not going to commit the Avera again. Shene'emar ya'azov rasha darko So again, first step says the Ramam in Tshuva is you have to stop sinning, which makes sense. There could be no tshuva unless, of course, there is a cessation of sin. That's number one. Number two, yasiru mimachshavto. Sin has to be removed from my very consciousness. The yigmar belibo, there has to be resolve not to do it again in the future. Shneemar, good. The chen yistachim al-sha'avar, person should have remorse for his past deeds. Shneemar ki achayishu nichamti. V'yaid alav yodea salumu shal yashalazachit. So this is the Maimodian construct of tshuva. Number one, cessation of sin. Number two, some way remove it from your consciousness. Number three, remorse. And the Ramam goes on in other places to discuss more steps. Kabbalah Allah Asid, resolve for the future. Okay, so far everything the Ramam said is quite intuitive and logical. If you take a look at number two, the Ramam in Hilchos Tshuva says something additional. And this is very dramatic. Midarche tshuva. Lios hashav tzoik tamed lifnei Hashem bebechi o bitachnunim vaosa tzedaka kefi kocho. There's another piece says the Rambam that a person who does tshuva has to constantly cry out to Hakadosh Baruch Hu, crying supplication, give tzedaka. It's interesting, by the way, as an aside, why is charity part of the tshuva process? Why is tzedaka part of tshuva on a most basic level? Sin is selfish and self-centered. When I commit an Avera, what really comes up is at the end of the day, my needs are more important than anything else. Part of the Tshuva process is to become a selfless individual. And one of the ways we do that 
is through the performance of tzedakah. He goes on, he says, about person has to distance themselves a lot from the thing with which they sinned. And a person has to change his name. Kilomar, excuse me, I'm someone else. I am not that person who committed those deeds. I'm not that person. The whole person has to change his actions. And I was very struck by this line on the Rambam. Very struck. I underlined it here in number two on your source sheet. The notion of going ahead and changing your name. I have to change my name, Ki'ilu, to say, I am someone else. I am not the person who committed these Averos. And I thought about this idea from the Rambam. And the Rambam essentially is saying is that part of Tshuva is becoming someone totally different. And even the notion of changing your name is quite dramatic. You know, the Ariyah Kaddish says that when parents are privileged to name a child, they're given a degree of Racha Kodesh, a degree of spiritual prophecy. Because a name is supposed to capture the totality of a little boy, a little girl. But how are you supposed to give your child a name which captures their totality when you only know them for a couple of days? You don't know who they're going to be, what they're going to be, or what they're going to turn into. And so a parent is given a degree of divine assistance in order to name their child. A name is a very significant thing in Yiddishkeit. And yet the Rambam says... Part of being about tshuva is changing your name, is becoming, becoming someone dramatically different. And I was thinking a lot about this Rambam. I saw it actually earlier in the summer. I was thinking about this, that are any of us really prepared to do this? As part of the process of tshuva, am I really ready and prepared to become someone new? Meaning, if you ask me, are there things I want to change about myself? A thousand percent. Are there things that are broken? Absolutely. Are there things that need to be removed, need to be tweaked, need to be added? Unequivocally. Am I willing to become someone different? Mishan Eshmo, to literally go ahead and change my name? So I just want to point out, the Slalom Rebbe was telling this despondent chassid, Ah, you're the Bala Shi'ifas, you're yearning for greatness. Yearning for greatness is so wonderful. You clearly see that in the Rambam's model, yearning for greatness is not nearly enough. That if I want to be a Balchuva, yearning is a great first step. But I have to literally be ready to change every aspect of who I am. Mishana Shmo, change your name. Kilomar, Ani Acher. I am someone else. I am not the person who did those things. It's a dramatic level of change. And if you think about it, we change names. Generally, when do we change people's names? Right? When they're deathly ill. Right? We, we change names like as a last ditch effort. Someone is in significant trouble. In the natural order of things, there does not really seem to be a Yeshua, there does not really seem to be a proper salvation. And so we change names. We change names. We never touch names unless, of course, there's no recourse. And yet the Rambam says that in order to really do proper tshuva, you have to become someone else.
Mishan Shmuel. Now it's true. You could say maybe the Rambam is not talking literally. Maybe it's a metaphor. But the Rambam, the Rambam was pretty precise with his verbiage. And if the Rambam says change your name, that really does mean to change your name. So what's the pshat? So we're thinking about this concept a lot over the summer. And I found myself grappling with one core question. Do people really change? Do people really change? Not as change possible. Of course change is possible. We have a constant shuva. Do people really change? Or at the end of the day, nine out of ten times, maybe there's a couple of tweaks here and there, a couple of modifications. I fixed the bugs, so to speak. But at the end of the day, I am who I am. And I've been thinking about this a lot. Because when we reflect on the year that was behind us, Think about all of the things that happened. Another year of pandemic, the tragedy in Meron, the tragedy in Surfside, and a million other things that happened over the course of this year. Those are the big events that happened this year. But so many smaller events also. You know, I remember Lagba Omer night. Lagba Omer night. I see Yitzi's here and Ellie's here and Maishi's here. You know, we were setting up in the tent right outside, getting ready for a beautiful Madura, beautiful bonfire. And the news was trickling in from Eretz Yisrael about what had happened in Meron. And there was so much confusion about what actually happened. And as the evening went on, the news became clear. 45 Kedoshim, at that point, there were still more people who were missing, unaccounted for. And I remember thinking to myself, an event like this is going to change the trajectory of Klal Yisrael. Unprecedented. It's never happened before. It's going to have to change so many things. And when the building in Surfside fell down and impacted so many Jewish families and so many other families, and we saw how fragile life is, once again, I thought to myself, and I remember I was with, my wife and I were in Florida, not so long after the building collapsed, and on Sunday, on the Sunday that we were there, there was a big gathering to help with relief supplies by the shul in Bell Harbor. And we went to volunteer with the efforts, and you saw people there. I thought to myself, everything's going to change. Everything's going to change. And do you remember when the pandemic started? How long is the pandemic? I think like five years ago when the pandemic started, right? Remember when the pandemic started? And that Sunday, we closed the shul. That Sunday, we closed the shul. And we went home. And I think all of us went home with the same exact mindset, which was, life is going to be so dramatically different. Everything's going to change. I'm going to change. I'm going to change. My davening, I missed my minion so much. My davening's going to change. I'm home with my family. My family life is good. Everything is going to change. And I can't speak for anyone else. But when I look at myself, not that much has changed. What's changed since Meron? In me? Nothing really. What's changed since Surfside? Nothing really. What's changed since the pandemic? So today's something interesting. And this is just one man's observations. 
the majority of changes that I see since the pandemic are changes for the negative, not the positive. We have become much more unaccommodating. We've become much fiercer and forceful in our pandemic hashkafas. Both ways. We've become unyielding. And I think for many people, the pandemic has afforded them the license to do things that perhaps up until now were socially unacceptable, but now have become part of the norm. Are there positive stories? Of course, positive stories all the time. But even leaving aside what's happening on the outside, I can only look at myself because it never really makes too much sense to spend too much time on the change that's happening around you. We have to focus our efforts on the change that's happening inside me. What's changed in me? We're close to two years, really, seriously, close to two years into the pandemic, a year and a half. Have I grown? Have I grown as a person? If I'm honest with myself, the answer is no. Have I made any one of the changes that I promised myself I was going to make after that last Dafyomi Shir, right after Purim over a year ago? No, if I'm honest. Seriously, Mitchell is a good time to be honest. I haven't made those changes. Now you could say because more often than not, events don't change people. People change people. Right? I think we know this. We know this from our ancestors in the desert. They saw miracle after miracle, event after event. And yet they still sinned, and yet they still rebelled. And yet they still did all of the horrendous things they did over the course of this year, but just saw every single miracle. The existence of HaKadosh Baruch Hu was incontestable. Events don't change people, people change people. But it's gotten me really thinking that if a pandemic doesn't change me, if a pandemic doesn't change us, every single part of our lives have changed. There was someone who was just telling me last week, oh yeah, my company just sent out an email we're going back to the office soon. <laughs> I was like, what? It's like, I never left the office. What do you mean going back to the office soon? Again, it's changed everything. It's changed every single thing. It's changed the way we work. It's changed the way we dive in. It's changed the way we interact, right? Before a year and a half ago, did you ever ask, ask a person, handshake, fist bump, elbow pump, wait, what, what, what is it? How, how, how do we greet each other? Hug, no hug, right? God. Everything, everything has changed. Except me. Except me. And when I venture to say, if I'm feeling this way, then many others feel this way as well. And so it really got me thinking, maybe we don't change. Maybe at the end of the day, we are who we are. And you can move the needle a little bit one way or the other. There are better days, there are worse days. There are holier times, there are less holy times. There's uplifting peaks, and there's downtrodden valleys. But at the end of the day, maybe people don't really change. And the truth is, there is a hashkafa like that. You know, the Gemara and Mesech Shabbos brings down that if a person is born under the mazel of Mars, the Gemara says the red planet, so the Gemara says that a person is either going to be a shochet or a murderer. They're going to go out and spill blood. That there's a concept that people have a nature. They have a nature. Just like in Tanakh, 
when we see someone who's a Jinji, when we see someone who's an Edmoni, someone who's a redhead. So redheads have a lot of passion. And that can go in one of two ways. You could be an Esav and you could be a David HaMelech. But the Midah is the Midah. The person is the person. Perhaps the only thing we control is how you channel it. But I can't accept that. I can't accept a model where change doesn't happen. Where change is not probable. Where change just doesn't really occur. I can't accept it. I can't accept it for me. And I can't accept living in a world like that. Because to me, to resign myself to the fact that people are people, life is what it is, and the pendulum really only swings so far in either direction, to me, sounds like such a fated approach to life. Sounds like such a dark and dismal approach. And then the Rambam comes along. And the Rambam says that what does it mean to do tshuva? Mishaneshmo. You have to change yourself in totality. Now for the Rambam to say that, that has to mean that what? That change is absolutely and unequivocally possible. That you could do it. The Rambam wouldn't tell me to do it if I couldn't do it. It has to be possible. So how do I reconcile the possibility of change according to the Rambam with the fact that more often than not in life, we don't change. We don't change. You know, I, was, I, was, I recently had an interaction with someone who I've known for a very long time. And, oh, you know, we'll come back to that afterwards. Good. Let's go right there. So how do we reconcile this idea? It's a good story for later. How do we reconcile this idea that the Rambam tells us we have to change, yet more often than not in life, it appears that we don't really change. If you take a look, skip a little bit for just a moment to number five. There's a beautiful Gemara Masech We actually had this Gemara not so long ago in Dafyomi. Amar Aivo. Aivo said as follows. One time, I was standing in front of Rabbi Lazar Bar Tzadok. And a particular man came to Rabbi Lazar Bar Tzadok. Just a guy. He came to ask a shayla. And what was his shayla? Amar lei, karyoso isli, karmaya isli, zesaya isli. I have vineyards, I have fields, I have olive groves. Va'asu b'nei karyoso, u'mikashkishin bekarmaya, va'ochlin bezesa. And now ultimately, by the way, the context of this was, it was a Shemitah year. It was a sabbatical year. So this guy was coming to Rabbi Lazar Bar Tzadik and he said, listen, I've got workers coming into my field and what I do is I pay them essentially with produce. Right? So they work the fields, they take produce as payment for their services. So, Arich Olo Arich. Simple man who's asked Rabbi Lazar Bar Tzadik is my practice appropriate or not? Is it appropriate or not? Rabbi Lazar Bar Tzadik says, inappropriate. Right? Inappropriate because first of all, you can't work a field on Shemitah. Right? And second of all, and second of all, you certainly can't pay workers with Shemitah produce. That's using Shemitah produce for commerce purposes. Amar Kiddo, so listen to this. So the guy got the Pesach Halacha and he left. And he left. Okay? Amar, Rabbi Lazar Bar Tzadik says, listen to this. I've been in this community for 40 years. 
ולא תמיסי בארינש מהלך בארכין דתוקנן כדין. And I have never seen a person as righteous walking in as straight of a path as this individual. Those are my sallikas. I've never seen someone so righteous. Okay. The guy comes back and he says to Elizabeth Tzaddik, what should I do? Okay, so what should I do? Pay the workers with money and make the produce hefker, make the produce ownerless. And the Mikhtav Meliar, Velio Dastar, writes in number six, asks a simple question. So the Mikhtar Melio asks a very simple question. He says, you know, Rabbi Lazar, remember, remember, remember what the Shiloh was. Guy comes over to Lazar Bar Tzadik, says, listen, I have workers working my field and I pay them which meet the produce. Is it permitted or not permitted? Rabbi Lazar Bar Tzadik says, it's not permitted. The guy leaves, right? Rabbi Lazar Bar Tzadik says, I have never seen such a righteous man. Really? First of all, the guy's farming on Shemitah, right? That, that's number one. Second of all, he's paying his workers with Shemitah produce. So what do you mean you've never seen such a righteous man? What's incredibly so significant about this individual? Look at the writes. Furthermore, asks the Mechtameliyah, the story doesn't make sense. Because how does the story flow? What happens? The guy asks, Rabbi Lazar Bar Tzaddik, is it permitted what I'm doing? Rabbi Lazar Bar Tzaddik says, says, no. What does the guy do? He leaves, and then what happens? He comes back. And when he comes back, what does he ask? What does he ask? So what should I do? Ask me to tell me, yo, why is he leaving? What, or ask the question, and then when you get the no, ask, what should I do right then and there? So he goes on, why does the guy not wait just simply another moment just to see at the end of the day what's going on? So look at this. Something very interesting. He says, because first, in the, in the paradigm of change of tshuva, there's sur meirah v'asetov. First, the person has to stop committing the negative actions, and then they could build on the positive. He goes on, he says, Skip to the last two lines. The Michta Mileo is telling us something absolutely amazing. When something transformative occurs, I have to take action immediately. I have to take action immediately. You see, what Rabbi Lazar Bar Tzadok was amazed by was the following. This guy comes, he asks the Shaila, is what I'm doing permitted or not? Rabbi Lazar Bar Tzadok says no. And what does he do in the next moment? He takes action. All right, I have to find out what to do afterwards. I'll come back for that. But right now, you just told me something. Right now, something transformative occurred. I must act right now. I must take 
immediate action. If you take a look at number seven, there's a beautiful Mishnah Meseches Yuma. The Mishnah says, describing the Avodah on Yom Kippur. And the Mishnah says, The Kohanim, the populace, were standing in the courtyard of the Beis HaMikdash. When they would hear the ineffable name of HaKadosh Baruch Hu, coming out from the mouth of the Kohen Gadol, they would prostrate themselves. They would fall down. Because when you see something dramatic occur, when you hear something dramatic occur, a person must take immediate action. You hear the name of HaKadosh Baruch Hu, you hear the Shema Mafurash, you can't stand in place. How are you going to react? What are you going to do? They would prostrate, they would bow down, they would take immediate action. And I think herein lies the challenge of change. You see, things occur and we don't act. Things happen and we have no response. So I'll take you back to Lagba Omer night. We heard this terrible tragedy, this unfathomable tragedy, a tragedy that still haunts us to this very day. What did I do? What did I do? I'll tell you what I did. I searched every news site. I was all over the internet to try to go out and get information. But what did I do? How did I react? What did I do? How did my life change when I heard about that traumatic event? So when the pandemic started and we said that life as we know it is going to change, that's nice to say it. How did I change it? How did I change myself? What did I do? What was my reaction? Because all too often in life, dramatic things occur. But yet we don't have dramatic reactions to those things. And so when something happens in life and I don't respond, events come and events go. News comes, news goes, and nothing really changes. Rebbe Lazar Bar says, I've never seen such a righteous person because in his entire life, he never saw someone respond to an event with such haste, such alacrity, and such speed. To see someone who internalizes an event and acts on it right then and there, Rabbi Lazar Bar says, I've never seen in my life someone like that. No one commanded the Jews to prostrate themselves in the Azara when they heard the Shema Mafurash. But if you were there, if you were standing in the Beis Hamikdash, you understood that something amazing just happened. And when something amazing happens, there has to be a response. And this leads us to the follow-up idea. Take a look at number eight. Take a look at number eight. You know, just to illustrate this one more, you ever have like a, I hate to sound like very dramatic, but a near-death experience, right? And, and, And even something like, whether it's an accident or sometimes it's even more acute, like you're driving, and you realize that you just missed something catastrophic by just a moment. Or, you know, you weren't paying attention and you snapped back into attentiveness in the last moment. 
Hey, how do you feel in those moments afterwards? How do you feel in those moments? In that moment, you're like, oh my God, everything is going to be different from here on in. I know how, I just tasted the fragility of life. I just saw it flash before my eyes and everything is going to be different. And an hour later, what's happening? Nothing's happening. It's the same thing over and over and over. Because dramatic events happen and we don't respond. So when you don't respond to events, the events come, the events go, and I remain the same. The Gemara number eight says as follows. The Gemara says, Am Rabbi Yitzchak, there are four things that could tear apart, literally that could rip up the gzardin. If a person has a negative judgment, four things which could go ahead and destroy that negative judgment. Eloheim, tzedakah, tzedakah, charity, crying out to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, shinui Hashem, we see this again, we'll come back to that. The shinui maisa, shinui maisa, shinui maisa literally means changing one's action. And Rashi says in number nine, what does it mean, Shinui Maisa? Rashi says, Shav Meira Aso. It means you stop committing the chait. You stop committing the particular Avera. And the Ritvai number 10 says, that makes no sense. Obviously, you have to stop committing the Avera. If I'm still sinning, then of course I haven't even stepped into the waters of Tshuva. It goes without saying, I cannot be a penitent if I'm still sinning. So the Ritva says something absolutely amazing. Do you know what Shinui Maisa means? So the Ritva says, introduces us to the concept of a Kabbalah. A Kabbalah means accepting something upon yourself. The Ritva says, Shinui Maisa, it goes without saying I have to stop sinning. The Gemara doesn't need to tell me that. Shinui Maisa means a Kabbalah. I accept upon myself that I'm going to do X. I accept upon myself that I'm going to start with this behavior, with this midah. I accept something upon me. The power of a Kabbalah says the Ritva is that it is a reaction to a dramatic event. You know, the Shulchan Aruch says something, the Shulchan Aruch in Aruch Haim says, that on a Sarasimit Shiva, it's good to be careful with Pas Yisrael. Right? That even if a person doesn't eat Pas right? Pas Yisrael is bread baked by a Jew. I suppose you go to the supermarket, right? You buy a loaf of bread with a Heksher on it. It's kosher, but that's, that's not Pas Yisrael. That's what's called Pas Palter, bread from a non-Jewish baker, which is, of course, 100% totally fine. Pas Yisrael is the dafka baked bread that's baked by a Jew. So the Shulchan Aruch says that on Sarasimit Tshuva, during these days, a person should be careful with Pas Yisrael. And you look at that Shulchan Aruch and you say to yourself, you say to yourself, Really? Okay, look, first of all, I could do that, right? That, that I could definitely handle, right? Pass Yisrael, you want me to do Pass for a couple of days? No problem. I don't need the entomans anyway, you know? So it's, it's not, it's not, I, I could handle that. But you have to ask, thank you, Iris. But you have to, right? But you have to ask yourself a different question, which is, at the end of the day, why, you know, as they say, what does Pass Yisrael have to do with Aserah if the Shulchan Aruch would have said, by the way, for 10 days, don't speak Lashon Hara. Well, I would have said, give me Pas Yisrael instead, right? I would have, right? If he would have said, just said, don't speak Lashon Hara for 10 days. Or for 10 days, be more charitable. For 10 days, don't get angry. Okay, that makes sense. For 10 days, be careful with Pas Yisrael. Do you know what the Shulchan Aruch is saying? The Shulchan Aruch is saying, if you undergo a Rosh Hashanah, and you're uplifted, 
Do you know what the danger of inspiration is? Easy come, easy go. It happens to all of us. Wow, what a musaf, what a shachris, what a davening. And then what happens? The next morning, I'm right back to where I was. What happened to all the inspiration? I was floating. I was mamish a malach on Rosh Hashanah. And now again, I'm just a regular guy with all the same stuff I was dealing with before. And it's simple. Because in order to go ahead and allow the events of life to have an impact on you, you have to react. And the way you react, says the Ritva, is through a Kabbalah. I am taking something on upon myself as a reaction to that dramatic event. And the Kabbalah could be something small. Like Pasisar. What does Pasisar have to do with Aseris Mitshuva? And the answer is nothing. So why does the Shulchan Aruch say you should be careful with Pas Yisrael? It's easy. It's easy. And it's something. So if I ask myself, why have the dramatic events in life not changed me? If I'm honest, it's because I had no reaction to them. They were in my heart. They were in my soul. They lifted me up. But I did not plug that energy. I did not plug those feelings into anything concrete. And so if the feelings of elation, if the feelings of inspiration, if the feeling of a new lease on life, if the feelings of I have to do things so dramatically differently are not plugged into something, even something small, and even something that has nothing to do with the actual event, then it just simply dissipates. The idea of the Kabbalah, Take something upon yourself. Something big, something small, something related, something unrelated. It doesn't matter. You know, Levi Yitzchak says that if a person experiences a moment of inspiration, he says, what should you do? Open up a chumash. Open up a chumash. And just read a pasuk. The Rebbe says, it doesn't matter which pasuk. Just read a pasuk. Why? Because the Rebbe says, inspiration is beautiful, but it lives somewhere amorphous. And it doesn't necessarily translate into anything. But if you take your inspiration and you plug it into a pasik, you've just done something concrete. Why didn't Meron change me as a person? Because at the end of the day, I had no Kabbalahs. I didn't plug those feelings of Avas Yisrael, those feelings of Achrayis Yisrael, into any concrete behavior. I didn't do anything with those feelings. And if you don't do something with the hergish, it just simply dissipates. If you look at number 11, the Tzemach Tzedek says something so beautiful. Listen to these words. The Rebbe of Lubavitch, he says, Kabbalah tova, shemekabal adam ala The taking on of a Kabbalah, of one small thing, on these holy days, listen to these words, hu hamalbush hachadash, the Rebbe says, Tzedek says that a Kabbalah during this time of year is the new article of clothing for a new soul in a new year. And dear friends, Kabbalahs don't have to be big things. Kabbalahs, things we accept upon ourselves could be the smallest of the small. It could be, you know what, I'm a Kabbalah upon myself to daven with extra kavan on the bracha of Rifa'inu for people in the Rufu Shalema. It could be that you know what? I'm not going to talk during Kaddish. 
It could be that I'm going to fill in the blank. It could be the smallest of things. It could be, you know what? I lose my temper with my kids. Oh, that's a harder one, actually. That's a big one. Right? I lose my temper with my kids. I'm going to be a little bit more understanding and yielding. It doesn't have to be anything. Kabbalists, you know, people think Kabbalists are like big things. I accept this upon myself. The Shulchan Aruch could have chosen a million different things that I should be doing during our Sarasimit Shavah. But the Shulchan Aruch purposely chooses past Yisrael. Do you know why? Because past Yisrael doesn't impact who you are. Past Yisrael doesn't impact how you live. Past Yisrael doesn't impact your neshama. I'm sure it does on some way. Past Yisrael doesn't impact your lifestyle. It's just where you buy your bread. But yet, if you do something that's a reaction to Rosh Hashanah, if you do something that's a reaction to Yemei Adin, then this Oros, the inspiration of the days, stays with you. But if there's no Kabbalah, if there's no acceptance upon myself, if there's no change, if there's no behavioral reaction, then easy come, easy go. Think about this in just a moment. It's true in all life relationships as well. Right? A couple in Shalom Bayes, I have some wonderful therapists here tonight. Right? A couple in Shalom has a Shalom Bayes problem. And as a result, the relationship is fractured. Fractured. So it's interesting how people think that often, that often, I think this seems to be much more by men than women, that what do you need to do in order to fix a fractured relationship? Oh, Mamish, everyone's scared to answer this one, right? What do you do to fix it? Say, I'm sorry. Chocolate. Say, I'm sorry. Right, chocolate, good. Right, say, I'm sorry. Right, just apologize. And it's interesting how sometimes a person will apologize, to, it could be to a spouse or someone else, and like they're shocked that the other person doesn't forgive them. But the apology was so genuine. It was so heartfelt. Because if you have a real fractional relationship, saying you're sorry is a great first start. But show me how things are different. Show me how things are different. How is the relationship going to be different going forward? You want to earn back my trust? Words are fantastic. What's going to change in your behavior? What's going to change in your approach? The apology is like the opening of the door. But then ultimately, again, there has to be some dramatic change. Tshuva is the same way. Reaction to life events is the same way. And I'll tell you, this is probably very pasha to all of you. But to me, this unlocked a few decades of personal frustration. Because what I struggle with more than anything is standing before HaKadosh Baruch Hu on the Yamim Noraim and saying I'm sorry for the same things. It's the same things. So why am I stuck in the same place in life? Why am I not moving forward? It's not because I don't try. It's not because I don't care. But it's really because I haven't changed. And why haven't I changed? Because I have allowed the events of life to simply pass through me. I haven't made Kabbalists. There's been no behavioral reaction to the dramatic events of life. And with no behavioral reaction, it's easy come, easy go. Can we change? Absolutely yes. Do we change? More often than not, the answer is often no. But again, not because we can't, but often because we don't react properly to the events of life. But there's one more piece. There's one more piece. There's another reason why change is so difficult, and with this, with this we'll conclude for the evening. 
The Pasuk in the beginning of Parashas Kiseitze says something amazing. Kiseitze the Mochama Alaivecha. When you go out to war against your enemies, and Hashem will deliver your enemies into your hand and you shall take a captive. So of course we know this is from in Hasidic literature. The idea of when you go out to war against your enemy. The enemy he's being referred to over here is not simply some external enemy. But the enemy is the Yitzhahara. And in fact, you know, Parashas Kiseitzi is always read right around Rosh Chodesh Elul. It's the beginning of the Avod of Aser Yitzhahara. And my job is to go to battle against the Yitzhahara. To go to battle against the Oyev. But the Lubavitch Rebbe Zechatzat makes an amazing observation. If you look at the wording of the Pasik, it says, You go out to war against you. Shem will deliver your enemies into your hands. Now, quickly, the way we often translate that is how you'll take a captive. But if you look at the words, it actually means, means you'll take captive. What? You'll take captive? A captive. You'll take a captive captive. Or you'll take captive his captive, his prisoner. So look what the Rebbe says in Numbers 15 and 16 are both the ideas Lubavitch ever expressed in different ways. I take something that the enemy had taken captive from me. When I go out to war against my demons, I go out to war against the Sahara. What's my mission? My mission is to capture something that the Sahara took from me. To capture something that had been taken captive from me. I take something from the enemy that the enemy had taken captive. See, you think in the Pasuk that I'm the first person taking the captive. No. I'm just simply reclaiming that which was originally mine and taken captive by the Yitzhar. In fact, if you look, take a look at number 16, a different expression of this idea. It didn't originally belong to the enemy. So the Rebbe says the Pasik is explaining something dramatically amazing, which is that when I go out to war against the Sahara, what's my job? To recapture that which was originally taken from me. I had something, I lost it, it was taken captive, and now my job is to reclaim it. And the Rebbe here is describing something Absolutely amazing. I used to have something. It was taken from me or lost by me. And now my job is to reclaim it. What's this dynamic? If you take a look at number 17, the Pasuk in Devarim says, just to give you the context, the Pasuk says over here, it's talking about Moshe Rabbein, you know, so much of Chumash Devarim, is talking about Moshe Rabbein and telling Kaladi so all the terrible things that are going to happen after he dies. And how they're going to go ahead and rebel against HaKadosh Baruch Hu, shake off the yoke of the Ribbono Shalolam. And so the Pasuk says, Kali will be exiled. As a result, ultimately, again, of their misbehaviors, they'll be exiled. And the Pasuk says, and when you're exiled, you will seek out from there Hashem, your God, and you will find Him, 
So a beautiful Pasik. Even when you're in the diaspora, you'll seek out God, and wherever you are, you will be able to find Him. And the Mepharshim tried to understand, you'll seek out God from there. Where is the from there? So the Arachayim HaKadosh number 18 says, Misham from there means diaspora. When you're exiled, you'll look for God wherever you are. In number 19, the Malbim says, Misham means in the midst of pain and difficulty. Even in the midst of pain and difficulty, you will seek out HaKadosh Baruch Hu wherever you are. Says Rav Shner Zaman of Liadi, the Balatanyo. In his Likute Torah, something absolutely amazing. The Rebbe says, look at number 20. Listen to these words of the Rebbe. When HaKadosh Baruch Hu went ahead and created the world, the Pasuk says he saw the light and it was good. And Rashi says, Rashi quotes the Ma'amar Chazal, but says, razal, Kitov Lignos. God saw that the original light of creation was so beautiful and so holy that it didn't belong in this world. Instead, HaKadosh Baruch Hu decided to hide it away. And where did the Ribbono Shel Olam hide the original light? Where did he put it? He says, Shebechinas or Shebechinas Aras Pinimis Tzorni Yisparach Yesh Bechol Echad Ve'echad Yisrael. Listen to the words of the Rebbe. Where did HaKadosh Baruch Hu hide the original light of creation? He hid it inside each of us. Inside of each of us is a little spark. The Or HaGonos, the hidden light, the original light of creation is embedded inside each of us. That's where HaKadosh Baruch Hu hid it. Hester But sometimes just as a result of life, it's hard to see that light. It's hard to find that light. And this, by the way, just as an aside, is such a fundamental theological tenet of Yiddishkeit, which is, we are born good, and we are born holy. Each of us has that light of creation inside of us. Just sometimes it gets obscured by a whole variety of misdeeds and missteps. Sometimes a person loses their light. Says the Rebbe, it's possible to lose your light. You could lose it. As a result of a variety of life circumstances, you could lose your light. Says the Rebbe, this is the meaning of the Pasuk. The way the Balatanya reads the Pasuk, Sometimes I lose my godliness. Sometimes I lose my light. That light which was embedded inside of me. That light which, which was placed inside of me. Sometimes I lose it. So what do you do when you lose your light? What do you do? What do you do? Look for it. Look for Hashem Elokecha. Look for that light that you've lost. But if you turn the page, the Rebbe goes on, he says, but where do you look? Where do you look for your lost light of divinity? Where do you look for your lost godliness? Listen to what the Rebbe says. V'hine hakazav omer, obikashtem misham. You have to look there. 
You have to look there. Misham daika. Ki kishem shi afshar lechapis achar aveda. Ulamatsa zulas bemakom shenevda. Kach lo yasig arpene Hashem. So I'll tell you this outside. So the Rebbe says, where do you look for your lost godliness? Where do you look for your lost light? Sham, there. What does there mean? What does there mean? Where you lost it. So the Rebbe says something amazing. He says, if you lose something, you lose your keys, right? So you lose your keys. How do you find your keys? How do you find your keys? It's not a rhetorical question, right? Not your question, I promise, right? Where was the last place I had it, right? In other words, if you want to find something, if you want to find something, you have to try to identify where do I think that I may have lost it. If I can't find my keys, but I go over to my neighbor's house and I search his house exhaustively, right? From basement to attic. I can't believe it. I can't find my keys. Of course you're not going to find your keys. You didn't lose it there. If you want to find that which you lost, you have to look where potentially you lost it. Says the Lekutei Torah, says the Rebbe, says the Balatanya, something amazing. HaKadosh Baruch Hu implanted beautiful light of creation. God saw the light was good. Too good. Too good to be in the world. So where does he hide it? Inside each of us. But sometimes in life you lose your light. So where do you look when you lost your light? misham. I have to ask myself, where did I lose it? Where did I lose my godliness? Where did I lose my light? And it's there that I have to begin to look. And dear friends, listen to what the Rebbe is teaching us. There are things in life that happen. There are things in life we do that cause us to lose our light. And this could be a variety of different things. A person suffers with trauma. As a result of trauma, they can lose their light. A person commits Averos, and sometimes very significant Averos. As a result of those Averos, I could lose my light. Says the Balatanya, if you want to regain your light, you have to have the courage to go back to the place where you lost it. And sometimes that's one of the hardest things in life. To find the strength to go back to the place I lost my light. Because often that place is a difficult place to go back to. I had an encounter with someone a few weeks ago. It was a very dramatic encounter. This person, I know this person for a long time. I'll just leave it like that. The person is nasty. The person is just mean. Just a mean person. The way he talks, the way he conducts himself, everything about him is just mean. Just mean. And I like to see the good in people. I don't like this guy. I just, just not a nice person. I don't know what came over me. But this is during Chodesh Shalom. I was having an interaction with this person. I took his hand and I said, what's the problem? What's the problem? And I said to him, I don't really like you very much. And I think most people don't like you very much because you're not nice. But I'm sure you're probably a decent guy. What's the problem? He started crying. He started crying. And what was just supposed to be a little bit of like an intervention, you know, turned into like a shtickle therapy session. 
And he told me something very personal and private. Namely that his father was very tough on him. Unusually tough on him. Like unforgiving tough on him. Not, not, not physically. At least that's not what he said. But emotionally. It was never good enough. It was never enough. He was never living up to his standards. This individual lost his light. He lost his light because of a traumatic life event. But if you lose your light and you want to get it back, you have to go back to the scene of the trauma. You have to go back to the place where you lost it. If I'm honest with myself, I've committed averos throughout my life that have caused me to lose my light. I don't like to confront those averos because they make me uncomfortable. Because I like to pretend that they're just a part of the past that I don't have to deal with them anymore. But unless I'm willing to go back, misham, to go back to the place where I lost my light and to be honest and understand why I am the person I am, I can't regain that orhaganus. I can't regain that lost light. It is only if we're willing to go back to the scene of the sin, to the scene of the trauma, and we all have it. We all have it. If we do this exercise with ourselves, we could point to an event or a series of events that put me on a different life trajectory, that put me on a different derech in life. And until I'm willing to make myself vulnerable and be honest and go back to that place, Misham, I can't regain my light. So maybe you'll think to yourself, well, Impasa, how do you think you regain your light? Maybe once you lost it, you've lost it forever. So I'll share with you something amazing. If you look at number 21, I'll tell you 20 because it's late 21, 22, 23, 24, 25. I'll tell you all outside. The Pasik says that by Yom Ashishi, by Yisa Adam Avinu was on his way, is on his way to sacrifice his son. And so the Pasik says it was the third day he was getting to Haramoria, he was getting to the site of the Akedah. And the Medrash asks, why did it take him so long to get to the site of the Akedah? Why did it take him so long? And the Medrash records an incredible story that Adam Avinu is traveling and the Satan is constantly trying to derail him. Constantly trying to derail him. Until finally, what did the Satan do? The Satan appeared like a big body of water. Avinu says, no problem, I'll walk in. Walking, 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 he gets up to his neck. He says, Kaddish Baruch Hu, listen, I'm willing to do the Akedah, but if I keep moving, I'm going to drown. And in that moment, Kaddish Baruch Hu went ahead and split the waters. I don't even continue on to the Akedah. And asks Rav Shwab in number 23, why, why water? Why water? And Rav Shwab says something absolutely amazing. He says, water represents chesed represents the act of kindness, the meat of kindness. What does it mean that Avram Avinu was about to drown in the water? Who was Avram Avinu? Who was he? Avram Avinu was the Isha Chesed. He was the man of Chesed. That was his midah. And HaKadosh Baruch Hu was asking him to do something that was the antithesis of Chesed, to slaughter his son. And HaKadosh Baruch Hu was asking to become someone totally and dramatically different. Armavinu had to become someone different. He said, I'm drowning in the water. I need to become a Balmidas Hadin, a man of strict justice, not a man of chesed. Does Armavinu, is he successful? Is he successful? Absolutely. Because you know what happens? When HaKadosh Baruch Hu calls out to him in number 24 and says, Atishlach Yadcha Elanar. 
He says, ultimately, do not go ahead and talk. Don't do anything to the boy. Don't do anything. There is such a strange Rashi. Rashi says, Avram says to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, God, can I just make a little nick? Draw a little blood? Like something, something. I came all this way. I packed up. I did all of this stuff. Can I at least do something? And HaKadosh Baruch Hu says, no. Because what HaKadosh Baruch Hu was like, Avram Abinu in that moment is now, I need you to become a Baal Chesed again. You were a Baal Chesed. You changed into a Baal Midas Hadin. Now I need you to reclaim your Chesed. Because dear friends, even the things that we lose in life, we can regain. Why is change so difficult? Because real change requires, because real change requires me to really be honest, take a look at my life and ask myself, what happened? What happened? How did I get here? And that has to be a brutally honest conversation between me and myself. And it can't be a conversation that has any level of blame associated with anyone else. Because it's easy to abdicate responsibility and say it was this one, it was this one, it was this one. But at the end of the day, the buck of my life stops with me. If I want real change in life, then I have to figure out where did I lose my godliness? Where did I misplace my hidden light? What trauma, what avira, what happened to me that caused me to go down a path that I know is not good for me? And if I find the courage to go back to that place, that I can engage in course correcting activity. And now we could kind of go ahead and bring it full circle. So it turns out, is change possible? Absolutely. Is it difficult? Unequivocally so. When the Rambam says, Mishana Shmo, that you have to change your name in order to be a Balchuva, perhaps what the Rambam is saying is as follows. He's not telling you you have to become someone new. He's telling me, I have to become who I was. Mishana Shmo, change your name, not to some new name, but change your name, change your identity back to who you were. Because the way we all start the same, we all start the same. We all start pure. We all start righteous. We all start with that hidden light ebbing inside of us. We all start the same. And then things happen in life Decisions are made in life. And we go down a variety of different paths, a variety of different roads. Mishan Shmo means don't become dramatic, someone dramatically different, but reclaim that which you lost. Reclaim your lost godliness. Reclaim your lost light. Find the courage to go back to the scene of the sin, to the scene of the trauma, to the scene of the life-altering event. Understand how that event or events had an impact on who you are today and figure out now how to engage in course-correcting activity. That's Mishanishmo. And so it turns out that change is absolutely unequivocally possible. But change requires two things of us. Number one, Kabbalahs. When something happens in life, there has to be a reaction. 
It doesn't have to be a reaction. But when something happens in life, if you want the event to shape you, and you want the event to change you, there has to be a behavioral reaction. I'm going to do this, and this could be something so small. So small. It doesn't have to be something spiritually heroic or spiritually dramatic. Something so small. But without Kabbalos, the events of life come and go. That's number one. And number two, in order to affect change, we have to find the courage, and it requires so much courage, to be brutally honest with ourselves. And I'm not in any way minimizing it. I don't know that I have yet to be truly honest with myself about where I've lost my godliness, of where I've lost my nitzutz, of where I've lost my or Hagano's hidden light. Because it's so dramatically uncomfortable. Takes me back to chapters of my life that I'm not proud of. Takes me back to events in my life that I'm not proud of. But unless I go back to where I lost it, I can never really reclaim it. I'll end off just with one last piece. You know, I mentioned this by Slichus. You know, and I, Baruch Hashem, this year we have three children living in Eretz Yisrael, living, uh, learning in Eretz Yisrael. And, you know, when my boys, when my boys left, okay, so, you know, I took them to the airport, they checked in, they're like, all right, bye. You know, you know that was it, you know, I think, I think, you know, we, we, I, I think they, they acted sad. But, um, but Baruch Hashem, when we took my daughter Malka to the airport, the scene at the airport, this was a seminary flight. The scene there was something like I've never seen in my life. And it was different when my older daughter, Chani, went there. It wasn't like this. So what happened, I just want to describe it to you, is we checked in my daughter. Okay, so she checked in her luggage. And then the scene that happened there was amazing. You had families. And every family, like, found the spot. And what happened in the spot? Crying. Everybody's crying. I was thinking to myself, like what the airport staff must think about this, right? <laughs> everybody's crying, right? Huddled, some families, everybody's hugging, other people not hugging, the yakas, you know, a little bit of a distance from each other. But you know, you know, uh, right? Uh, everybody's crying. I, I, I think it was one of the most emotional experiences of my life because literally everybody is crying, right? Right, the, the guy, like, right, the Tutsach, you know, from Brooklyn, who cut every single line, right, and parked on the curb and told the, you know, told, told you know, like the SWAT team guy, don't worry, I'll be back in a minute, right? You know, even that, right, even that guy, mamish, like, 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 like a ball of tears. Everybody's crying. Everybody's crying. And I thought to myself in that moment, it's such an unnatural thing. You know, here, like, you would think, like, I don't know, like, she's being, like, abducted into the czarist army. She's being taken from us. And meanwhile, like, she's leaving. We're paying for this, right? And paying a lot of money for this, right? And, and I realized in that moment, because the truth is, to a certain degree, it's unnatural for children and parents to be apart. It's unnatural. Obviously, when they reach a certain age, it's natural and healthy, but when they're young, it's unnatural to be apart from your children. A parent wants to be with a child. A child wants to be with a parent. I think the tears that were there was it felt like something incredible was about to occur. 
but also something dramatically unnatural. My daughter is supposed to be in my home. My daughter is supposed to be with me. The family unit is supposed to be intact. That's the way the world is supposed to work. And I realized that that's the essence of Rosh Hashanah. That's the essence of Aser Zimit of Yom Kippur. That what happens over the course of the year, that we distance ourselves from our Father. We're separated from the Ribbono Shel Olam. And there is no greater pain in life than being distanced from your father. There's no greater pain. Sometimes we don't realize it because we get so busy with everything else. But there's no greater pain than living apart from your father and not having seen him for who knows how long or not having really spoken with him for who knows how long or not having had the opportunity to feel his embrace or to feel his sweet kiss on your forehead, or to have him dry your tears in the midst of difficult times. It is so difficult to be alienated and distanced from your father. But there's another greater existential pain, and that's to be distanced and alienated from yourself. Too many of us go through life, and we don't let ourselves get to know the real me, because I'm scared. Because to know the real me is to admit that maybe I really haven't made any significant changes over a prolonged amount of time. And to get to know the real me sometimes requires me to admit that maybe I've lost my spark of godliness somewhere along the journey. And so we remain distant from the real me. There's the projected me, who the world thinks I am, and often I convince myself that that's the real me. But deep down, I know that it's not. Yamim Noraim offers us this incredible and beautiful opportunity to be reunited with our Father and to be reunited with ourselves. And all I have to do to be reunited with my true self is to be honest, to make the Kabbalahs I need to make, to go back to the places where I've lost my godliness. And HaKadosh Baruch Hu tells us, don't be scared. Because as long as you find the courage to go back to the scene of the sin, the scene of the trauma, your spark will be there waiting for you. You'll scoop it up. You'll cup it lovingly in your hands. You'll insert it back into your neshama. You'll feel its energy pulsate through your entire being. And you will be prepared for a year of growth, a year of bracha, and a year of incredible success. May we be Zochem Hashem to make our Kabbalahs, to find that which we have lost, to reorient ourselves with our Father, to reorient ourselves with our true self. And may this be a beautiful year filled with bracha, with mazel. May we, together with our mishpachos, be inscribed and sealed in the Sefer Achayim for a year filled with all of the brachos we need, those we know we need and those we don't know we need. But Emirat Hashem, the most important bracha is that if we all reclaim our hidden light, if we all reclaim our godliness, then Emirat Hashem, that collective light will light up the world. And that collective light will pave the way for the light of Mashiach. Amen.